Today, we're going to be doing a follow-up on Romans chapter 13 that I call Good Citizenship 201. Last week was 101, and when I refer to 101-201, I'm referring to college-level courses. When you enter in as a freshman at the university, all of your classes are 101, 102, as you are just getting some introductory basic knowledge about the subjects that you're studying. And then as you progress through the university and your sophomore year, you take the 200-level classes, and in your junior year, you're at the 300-level, and when you're a senior, you're taking 400-level classes, which are more advanced into the area that you've specialized into. And so when it comes to our relationship to the governing authorities that God has established, Romans chapter 13 establishes our baseline. It establishes the basic truth by which we live our lives. And today, as we go deeper into what all of Scripture has to say on the subject of the Christian as a good citizen in subjection to the governing authorities, we're not going to contradict, hopefully, anything that was said and taught last week. Today, we're not talking about exceptions to Romans chapter 13. No, we're going to clarify the teaching of Romans chapter 13 in certain instances where there are questions, where there are more complexities involved than in everyday normal life. And so, having established the baseline of our responsibility to the authorities, that is that we follow rank, we respect the authorities, and we pay our taxes. We're not going to undermine any of that, hopefully, but instead we're going to provide a little nuance and understanding that goes to some of the complexities involved in our relationship to our government. And so I'd like to turn your attention first this morning to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Open up to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is one of the chapters that I come back to very often in my meditation of the relationship of Christian to government and our role in society. Because in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel demands a king. Now, as we look at the history of Israel, we have tremendous lessons that come to us in all areas of life. And in particular, this morning, we're focusing in on what we learn from Israel as regards their government. Think about this. God established a nation. He created them from nothing, from a man and a woman who were not able to have children. He multiplied them. He preserved them. He protected them. Even during a time of oppression and slavery where they were not a free people for 400 years until the time when he called them out to be a nation that was his particular special people. And then God by divine inspiration, through his prophet Moses, gave the nation of Israel divine laws. He gave them a system of government that was directly from heaven and was not a natural growth out of the world that we live in. And so when you look at the laws that God has given to Israel in the Old Testament, you can really learn a lot of fascinating things about God's view of government, God's view of justice, God's view of what society and citizenship and society is supposed to look like. Now, as we go from the time of Moses forward to the time of Samuel, we're covering quite a long time period. We're talking about 400 years here from the time of Moses to the time of Samuel thereabouts. And when we come to the time of Samuel, we find that he is the last in the line of judges who were 
leading the people of Israel. When God established a nation, he did not set up a king. He did not set up a centralized authority, but instead he instituted local government. He instituted judges in different places, in different townships, and we'll be taking a look at some of those laws this morning. But here we're starting in 1 Samuel chapter 8 because this is where the people of Israel decide that it's time for a central authority for a king. Now, the problem with this request, as God points out in these chapters, is that Israel already had a king. They just weren't recognizing their king. They just weren't following their king. The Lord was their lawgiver. The Lord was their leader in battle. All of the functions of the central authority, the king, in ancient society was being done by the king of Israel himself, God in heaven. And he had given them his laws and he had given them lower magistrates in order to carry out his rule and he had given them prophets in order to speak the word of God to them. But they weren't following God's laws, they weren't following God's leadership in battle, and they weren't making wise judgments. And so the people of Israel, as the book of Judges said, every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. There was chaos and a level of anarchy in Israel because they were not following their king. And so when they asked for a king, God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting your leadership, they're rejecting my leadership. Now, God did intend for Israel to eventually have a king. The right time, the right place, God had a plan for their kingdom. However, they're kind of jumping the gun here. And so God, through the prophet Samuel, warns the people of Israel what having a human king is going to be like, what it's going to cost when people are not able to govern themselves under God's law, then what is the cost of human government on this, this level of kingship? Listen to what Samuel says. Picking it up there in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10. All right. So before we read it, let me just introduce our outline. You see, we're going to be looking at two subjects today. We're going to be looking at oppression, both foreign and domestic, and then we'll be looking at the proper attitude and actions in civil disobedience, which we began looking at last week, but really want to develop a little bit further here in our Good Citizenship 201 class. Now, when we're talking about oppression, here we are in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and you're going to be focused on the domestic oppression. This is oppression that comes from your own government, your own rulers. All right? This will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. Picking it up there in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take... Well, there's three words that you're going to want to take note of as we continue throughout this. The first thing God tells people about centralized authority, they will take. All right? He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take 
your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." You shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. We're talking about domestic oppression. The oppression of the people by their own government. And what Scripture lays out for us at the very beginning of the establishment of central authority is the expectation that human government will oppress its people. This is not unusual. This is not surprising. This is not something unique to Israel or in any time or place. This is the normal course of human government. Human government will take and human government will enslave. That is the cost that we pay for not being able to govern ourselves under the law of God. Because we cannot govern ourselves under the law of God, we require an authority. The authority that God places over us is a human authority, a sinful authority, a fallible authority, a selfish authority. So when they have the authority, don't be surprised if they use that authority to enrich themselves. Don't be surprised if they use that authority to subject you to their desires. That is the cost of having government. Is that cost worth it? Yes, that cost is worth it. Better to have a government that we are oppressed by than no government at all. I would rather live in Iran than to live in a country with no government. At least in Iran, theft and murder is punished. Am I right? As a general rule, human government does its job of restraining human evil, punishing criminals. That's what they do. They do it well. Even bad governments who oppress their people do that job well. And so this is important for us to understand. We thank God for the coercive power that government uses very often to enrich themselves and take away our rights because it's worth it. Without human government, it would be much worse. So in some ways you could say human government is a necessary evil in a fallen world. This centralized authority, this power of the sword... It's a necessary evil in a fallen world, and there is a cost for that. God makes that clear from the beginning. A people who are able to govern themselves under the law of God need less and less governing authority over them. A people who are able to govern themselves under the law of God do not require a strong central authority in order to maintain order. 
but instead order is maintained by the virtue of the people themselves in subjugating themselves to the law of God written on the heart. That is the ideal society. That's what we want. That's what God set up Israel to be, but because of their unbelief, because of their faithlessness, because of their godlessness and their idolatry, they were not able to function in that ideal. We thank God for the coercive power that he has given to government to stop theft and murder. You say, well, what if the coercive power of the government is used against us unjustly? Oh, well, that's the price you pay for living in a civilized society. If the government uses their coercive power against you unjustly, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to appeal it to the courts. God has established the courts. Come with me to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Backing up from 1 Samuel, before Israel had a king, they still had courts. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, you see some of God's instructions regarding submitting to the decision of the courts. Will you be oppressed by your government? Yes. Will they take from you? Yes. You will have to pay your taxes, as Romans 13 says. But if you are wronged, you have the right given by God to have your case taken before judges. You get your day in court. That's what God has instituted, and we're thankful for it. As we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 17, I'd like to pick it up actually in verse 8. Let's catch the whole context here. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision." Then, verse 10, you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously, by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. That word presumptuously, you could also translate it insolently. A man who does not subject himself to the decision of the court that God has established is a man who is an insolent man. He is an anarchist, a man who is ruled only by his own sense of what's right and wrong. Well, I think the judge got it wrong. I think the court was wrong, so I don't have to abide by an unjust decision. God says, I've set up courts. I've set up judges. You make your appeal. If you win your case, great. If you lose your case, too bad for you. Do what the judge says. 
That's what God's word is instructing there in Deuteronomy. You say, well, Timothy, that's the Old Testament law. That has nothing to do with our courts. Oh, really? Why did God give us this? Why did God set up the nation in the way that he did if it was not written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come? If God wanted this just to be for ancient Israel, well, then he could have written it in some way that would not have been taking up space in our Bibles. He could have given them traditions that would have set up all of this. But God puts it here in the Bible for our instruction. The law is given to reveal to us the righteousness of God. And God's will regarding legal decisions, something that you might think, well, you know, that's not not that important. Well, yes, it is quite important. A society doesn't run. It doesn't function without law and order. And so God gives us instructions on how to appeal injustice. And we appeal to the courts. Now, if you're wrong, then the court gets it wrong. Well, what does First Peter have to say about something like that? This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. The court might get it right for you. The court might get it wrong for you. If it gets it wrong for you, then you get to be mindful of God and endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. And that's God's will for you. If they get it right, wonderful, good for you. The city of Los Angeles went after Grace Community Church for having services and defying the health mandates to close down their church during the pandemic. Pandemic. John MacArthur and his church decided they were going to sue the city and take them to court because their law was unjust. They won that case. And the city of Los Angeles had to pay over $2 million in legal fees for Grace Community Church. God appoints a government. And if you think that the government officials are unjustly treating you and making you their slaves, well, appeal it to the courts. I'm not saying they're always going to get it right. I'm not saying you're always going to get justice in this world, but at least there is some justice. At least there is order. We want to build that order and submit to that order and work within that order. All right. Having talked about domestic oppression from 1 Samuel chapter 8 and looking at how God has set up courts for us in order to remedy domestic oppression, then let's take a look at foreign oppression in the Bible. I want you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 27. I'm taking us to Jeremiah chapter 27 because I'm going to contrast this passage with another passage and show how when it comes to dealing with foreign oppression, it takes a lot of wisdom. You need to be able to know God's will by having walked with God and being filled with God's Spirit to know when is the right time to fight. And When I say fight, I mean actually fight force of arms, when do you take up force of arms against foreign oppression, and when do you submit to foreign oppression? So governments oppress. You can be oppressed by your own government, you can be oppressed by foreign oppression. How do we know the difference between them, and how do we know when it's right to submit to foreign oppression? Well, the Bible deals with these questions, okay? The Bible gives us answers to these issues. The wise student of Scripture not only has the baseline of submission to your own domestic government, but also is able to deal with more difficult and complex questions of what if 
The government that I have been living under no longer is a domestic government, but seems more like a foreign oppressor. And what do we do in those types of situations? Well, let's take a look at Jeremiah chapter 27 for one side of this discussion. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus, the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon. Notice he's telling all the kings what God's word is. By the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah, give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him, his son and his grandson, until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. See the oppression? Making slave, just like we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You will become slaves to your own government. But now, these governments are becoming slaves to a foreign government, a foreign oppressor. And God is making it known. Verse 8. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon... For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from your land and I will drive you out and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken, concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name, with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. Thus I spoke to the priests, to all this people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for that is a lie. They are prophesying to you a lie. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a desolation? If they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts, that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem, may not go to Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
concerning the pillars, the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take away when he took into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. The prophets, the false prophets, they were telling the people of Israel, We are God's nation. We are God's people. We've got the temple. We are special. We don't have to submit to Babylon. We don't have to accept their terms. We don't have to become vassals to their kingdom. We can be strong. We can be free. We can rebel. We can revolt. Independence. Rah, rah. There's a time for revolt and independence. There's a time for submission and obedience. It takes wisdom. God made clear to his servants what his will was in this situation. But is it always God's will for us to be subservient to foreign nations? No. No, it's not. Let's turn in God's word to another passage in contrast to this one. Let's look at what God says in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 7. Actually, you don't have to turn there. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I just want you to see this verse. Speaking about King Hezekiah, who lived a long time before Jeremiah, back in the days when Babylon was not the threat to the kingdoms of the Middle East, but instead Assyria was the threat. And the king of Assyria was the one who was subjecting all the nations and their kings to his taxes and his rule and his authority. And it says in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 7, the Lord was with Hezekiah. Wherever he went out, he prospered. And Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. And that was the right thing to do in that time for that person. And so you see, it takes a lot of wisdom to know the right time and the right place in order to submit to a foreign oppressor or to fight against a foreign oppressor. Hezekiah fought. And the Lord fought with him, and he won. Zedekiah fought, and the Lord did not fight with him, and he lost. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10 in your Bibles, please. See, you thought all this Old Testament stuff was only useful for pointing ahead to Jesus Christ with prophecies. There's a lot in here that we can learn that is not directly related to the coming of Jesus Christ. Come back to Isaiah chapter 10. Now there's a lot of sophomores out in the pulpits. You know what a sophomore is? A sophomore is a second year student in college and he thinks he knows everything. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And so if you don't know your Old Testament, you should not be preaching in church. You need to read this, you need to study this, you need to believe it. And you need to be looking to this as your source of truth about everything, including political matters. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 10. I want you to see the word of the Lord to Assyria in the days of Hezekiah and the days of Isaiah who prophesied during that time. So Hezekiah rebelled against the king of Assyria and that was the right thing to do, but... 
all of the other nations around, they were going to be destroyed and be subject to slavery, political slavery, oppression. That's the biblical word for oppression is slavery. They were going to be subject to the oppressive power of the Assyrians. But notice what God says about this in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. And so Assyria is beating the nations with this staff. And God says, that staff that's in their hands, that's my fury. I'm the one who's bringing Assyria to judge these nations and their governments and their idolatry. Woe to Assyria, but even though Assyria is being used by God, this is an oracle against Syria. And God is pronouncing woes upon the staff of fury that is in their hands. He says about Assyria in verse 6, Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Stealing and killing. What can governments do? They can steal and kill. Because they've got the sword. They've got the power. They've got the authority. And God has sent the king of Assyria to steal and kill the nations that he is bringing judgment upon. That's what Isaiah 10 verses 5 and 6 make clear. Do you think God is different today? We have a different God who doesn't send nations to kill and steal in his wrath and fury upon nations? No, he's the same God. He's doing the same thing today that he was doing back then. You got to know God. Read the Bible to find out what does he do? What are his ways? The Bible reveals to us the ways of God so that we can understand the times in which we live. Look at verse 7. But he, that is Assyria, does not so intend. He's not thinking, well, I'm a messenger of God's wrath. I'm bringing God's wrath upon the nations. That's not his intention. That's not his thought. That's not his motivation. No, his heart does not think so. But it is his heart to destroy. He just loves the destruction. He's not looking for God's justice. And to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? Notice verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion, his work of judgment, and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria, and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasuries. Like, like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, talking about his military strength, the Lord will destroy both soul and body 
and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So the, the mighty army of Assyria is like a forest with this huge force of power. Each man a tree in that army. And God says, I'm going to wipe it all out. So, when you look at Ukraine and Russia, is Ukraine a righteous country? No. Is Russia a righteous country for invading? No. Was Assyria righteous? No. Were the people they were destroying righteous? No. God has instituted human government. He's instituted human government to provide peace and stability in people's everyday lives. But when it's time for war, that's when God uses the human government that he has established in order to bring judgment to sinful and wicked people. And if he chooses to bring that here, we won't be able to complain about God's justice. So, there is such a thing as foreign oppression. God is in control of it, and there's a time to fight, and there's a time to submit. A wise man will know the difference, a spirit-filled man. Now, when we're talking about resisting foreign oppression, we keep in mind that the Bible warns us about being hasty about this type of action. The founders of our nation understood this. Look at what Proverbs chapter 20, verse 2 says. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. You want to be careful about choosing to rebel against a mighty king. Don't underestimate the power of the central authority. It's not an easy thing to rebel against oppression. Count the cost. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 21 and 22 says, My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. Don't be a joiner. Fear the Lord and the king, for disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from both of them. The Bible warns you, you're a common person. You don't have a lot of strength. You don't have a lot of military might. Don't take your stand against oppression unless you are ready to pay the price. The framers of our Declaration of Independence were very wise. Listen to what they wrote. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable. Expect oppression. Expect to suffer at the hand of your government and just bear with it. Than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right... It is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies and such now is the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over those states. Go back to the American Revolution and when the colonies first came over from England, 
They were English colonies. These were English men. They were subjects of the crown. And they were moving to a new land, but they were just an extension of England. But over time, the, the national bonds, the bonds of, of common interest, were strained to the point of breaking. And the king of England viewed these colonists no longer as his own people, but almost like a foreign people that he was conquering in order to reduce to absolute slavery. Now, when you're talking about oppression, what you need to keep in mind is that there's a whole spectrum of oppression. It's not like you've got good government and oppressive government, and there's just those two options, and it's all one or all the other. That's not the way it works. All government has a measure of oppression involved with it. And God expects us to submit to that oppression. However, when we look at the Bible, we see that there are times when people opposed by force of arms, oppression that was foreign oppression because the foreign oppression was designed by the foreign oppressors to completely murder and destroy the people, to bring them into absolute poverty and lack of freedom. So when a government that formerly was looking out for its people continues to move towards this end of absolute despotism, there comes a point where wise people say, this is no longer a government for us. This is a government against us, and we must defend ourselves and set up new forms of government. Now, when I was a younger man, I was a sophomore. I only looked at Romans 13, and I thought, well, the American Revolution must have been unbiblical because the Bible says submit to the governing authorities, and they didn't submit to the governing authorities, so there you have it. And what the rest of the Bible helps us to do is to find well, yes, you are to submit to the governing authorities, but how do you know what the governing authorities are? How do you know which governing authorities you're supposed to submit to? Because there are competing governing authorities, and new governing authorities do arise from time to time and declare themselves. And when a certain group of people get together and they declare we're forming our own government, well, now what do you do? Are you part of this new government? Are you part of the old government? Situations get complicated. And the Bible deals with those complications and gives us wisdom to be able to navigate them. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes gives us words of caution. Don't be quick to join a revolution or a rebellion. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Let's go there. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 in your Bibles. Turn to Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Notice that we're, we're looking at a good deal of the wisdom literature here. And when you're dealing with political matters, you're going to need wisdom. And so these are great chapters. If you just look up king in your concordance or on your Bible app, look at everything that God says about kings in the law. Look at everything that God says about kings in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and, and you'll start to be able to develop biblical wisdom on understanding politics and human government. Start there in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? 
Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. Think about that. Good words for meditation. God will give you wisdom in all things. Now, I want to I look at one other passage here that is very important. Come with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 12. Now, rulers can delegitimize themselves by immoral and harsh actions over their people. Rulers can delegitimize themselves in the eyes of their people when they move on the scale of oppression from slightly oppressive to very oppressive. You see this throughout history, and you see it here in 1 Kings chapter 12. The reign of David was a building of the kingdom. He was a wartime king. He was fighting to defend Israel's borders and establish their peace and security. But then the reign of Solomon was a consolidation of the kingship and a building time where all of the structures of the central authority, the temple, the palaces, were being constructed at great cost to the people. He will take, he will take, he will take. Well, Solomon was doing lots of taking. All right? Taxes were huge during the reign of Solomon. And so we come to the time of Rehoboam, and the people of Israel are starting to feel like slaves, like God said they were going to be, underneath the rule of David's dynasty. This chapter, you see, is entitled Rehoboam's Folly. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. So, we've got a couple interesting characters here, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. You go back and read more of the story of Jeroboam and how he got to this place. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, now Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, your father, Solomon, made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father. Remember, they're slaves, they've got the yoke, they're being oppressed, domestic oppression. Lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days and then come back. And so the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise me to say to answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men, the sophomores, who had grown up with him, said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you will lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said. Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men. 
saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Abijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, the slaves, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So here you've got a new authority that has been created because the old authority didn't listen to the people, became an oppressor of the people. God does this. This is from God. This is how authorities delegitimize themselves in the eyes of their people. Justin Trudeau in Canada is paying a heavy price in delegitimizing the authority of his government in the eyes of his people by using a heavy hand. There's a price that he has to pay for the decisions that he makes. In the same way, the government of Australia is delegitimizing themselves in the eyes of many people in their nation and around the world by the foolish decisions that they are making in setting themselves up as oppressors of their own people. An example of this is Novak Djokovic, a brilliant tennis player, one of the greatest to ever play the game, who went to Australia to defend his championship there in the Australian Open. And the government said, well, because you're not vaccinated, you can't play in our Australian Open. In fact, you can't even stay in Australia. He appealed his case to the courts, which is the right thing to do, according to Deuteronomy chapter 17. He didn't make a big fuss, didn't make threats and violence or try to cause some kind of uprising and say, well, I'm going to start my own tennis association. No. He recognizes the authority. He appeals to the authority. He presents his case. He goes to the courts. He loses his case. The courts decide foolishly, in my opinion. But what do we do when the courts decide foolishly? Well, we do what Novak Djokovic did. Peacefully abide by the decision of the courts. And he left the country. When people do what's right, it has an effect. God has called us to be the best citizens this nation has ever seen. And I'm not talking about the best citizens this nation has ever seen in the eyes of people. I'm talking about the best citizens this nation has ever seen in the eyes of God. And when we do what is right for the right reasons, in the right way, it has a profound effect upon the people of our nation and the government of our nation. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 26. This will be our final passage for today. Jeremiah chapter 26.
Jeremiah comes and speaks the word of the Lord, this word of truth. The people don't like it. Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 7. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this house shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered round Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against the city as you have heard with your own ears. And notice Jeremiah's got his day in court. And what's Jeremiah say? Jeremiah spoke to the officials and all the people saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you've heard. Now therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. A righteous man does what's right. He submits to the governing authorities. And he speaks the truth about those politics of his day, as Jeremiah did. Let's be like Jeremiah. Let's be like Djokovic. Let's do what Romans 13 says in difficult times. Bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Lord God, give us a love for our nation, a love for our neighbor that is willing to suffer for their liberties, that is willing to suffer for their rights, the right to control their own body and what vaccines go into their bodies. Lord, I thank you for brave people who stand up and will speak truth to the governing authorities and who are willing to sacrifice their careers, willing to sacrifice their freedom, willing to sacrifice their livelihood in order to preserve good government. We thank you for the gift of government. Lord, even though we pay much in taxes, even though there is a cost to our government, there is a certain loss of freedom that comes along with having a a strong central government. Yet, Lord, we thank you for all the good and all the blessings that you bring to us through the authorities that you have established. And I ask, God, that you give us as a congregation wisdom to not be sophomores, to not think we know everything, but to keep coming back to your word. Keep coming back to your word and looking for wisdom, insight. May we be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, especially when discussing politics with one another. And may our forbearing spirit be made known to all who are in the world around us, that they might be able to see that Christ is dwelling within us. We are not proud, we are not obstreperous, we are not rash, but that we are wise, self-sacrificing, compassionate, judicious, and submissive to authority. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.